I love playing the game of disc golf. What I hate is waking up the next day, feeling that soreness in my muscles, in my body, my arms, my shoulders, my legs. And what I typically do is I wake up, I hammer down a few ibuprofen or Tylenol, and I go ahead and move on with my day. What I didn't realize was how bad that was for my body as well. Throwing a disc is very strenuous on your body, whether you realize it or not. What it does is it causes micro tears in muscles, which then become inflamed, and that's where any post-workout or post-round soreness comes from. That's why you need to check out our friends at Wonderkind. Wonderkind with a U. All natural CBD products. They're located right here in the United States, and they're always shipping for free. All of their products are 100% legal in all 50 states, lab tested to make sure that you're getting the highest quality CBD product to help you recover from your round out on the course. The CBD products all have an anti-inflammatory property, which is amazing for muscle recovery and pain reduction after a round. Guys, check out Wonderkind. Again, that's W-U-N-D-E-R-K-I-N-D. You can follow them on Instagram at Wonderkind Extracts, and you can visit their website at wonderkindextracts.com and select from any of their amazing CBD products and use code RUNIT15 at checkout to save 15% off. Again, that's RUNIT15 at wonderkindextracts.com. Tired of putting down those ibuprofen and those Tylenol, eating up your stomach and attacking your liver? Well, give an all-natural CBD product a shot and see how much better you feel after your round. Again, that's wonderkindextracts.com, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Hey, guys, this is Avery Jenkins, and you're listening to Running It with Nate Sexton. Running It with Nate Sexton is brought to you in part by Innova Champion Discs. The Choice of Champions. Hello, Disc Golf fans, and welcome back to another episode of Running It with Nate Sexton. I am your co-host, Jared Orr. He is the 2017 USDGC champion and the Innova team captain, our host, Mr. Nate Sexton. Nate, how you doing, man? I'm good. I'm glad to be back doing the show again. And uh, and we're back and we're rolling. And uh, you came off a, a, another impressive performance. I don't want to call it a comeback, Nate, because you've been here for years, man. But uh, you went out there. You had a, a fox pee on your desk in your practice rounds, and then you you finished eleventh and in, uh, in Stockton. How'd the round feel? Oh uh, yeah, that was a crazy thing with the fox. But overall, uh, you know, it was easily my my best performance of this year, which isn't saying much so far. But uh, I felt great to make the lead card after the first day, and I was playing well. And yeah, it was a really long course, but a well done course, I thought. And in, um, in Stockton, there at the golf course, I had a great time. I mean, my second round left a lot to be desired, but you know that's how it goes sometimes. And yeah, then I started feeling a little sick, which is why we had to postponed the show kind of got the sore throat thing going and covid test negative thankfully was still able to go on a like a, a camping trip with a couple other families this weekend and we went up in the mountains and had a little camping time that was really fun and yeah now back home feeling better actually leaving tomorrow for the masters cup down in santa cruz so right back at it good man 
we're happy to uh, we're happy to have you out. It was cool to see you on the lead card and and back out there doing Nate Sexton type things. All right, Nate. Now before we get to this exciting interview for all of our listeners, I got to take a second to pay some bills and talk about our friends over at FisherDiscGolf.com. FisherDiscGolf.com, as everybody knows, has been a huge supporter of running it with Nate Sexton. FisherDiscGolf.com is the official retail sponsor, and they now have a brand new website. This website is awesome. If you've been to FisherDiscGolf.com in the past, do yourself a favor. Hop over and check out the new layout. It's easier to navigate, better pictures, more descriptions. It's really an awesome website. And they've also dropped wave two of those specialty ledgestone discs. Now, I know there's a lot of collectors out there. These ledgestone discs are hard to come by. And Fisher Disc Golf is one of the few official retail sponsors for the ledgestone tournament as well. Um, so visit FisherDiscGolf.com. Of course, they still got their disc stacks going on, which is uh, just an awesome thing to take part in. If you guys haven't had the opportunity to check out a disc stacks yet, uh, find them on Facebook at Fisher Disc Golf. You can also check them out on their YouTube page, uh, Little Inside Baseball, the YouTube page. It comes in in 1080. You can really kind of zone in on the exact disc that you want, and uh, it makes it a little bit of a list, a uh, little bit less of a risk of what you're going to pull there. So, just a little inside tip for our listeners here on uh, running it. So, FisherDiscGolf.com. Check out that new website, guys. Uh, check out the new Ledgestone discs. Of course, they got the Clint Calvin discs that are out there. He's been lighting the world on fire in these tournaments. And Nate, just for listening to this show, all the listeners can save themselves a little bit of money, right? Yeah, you use our code RUNIT10 to get 10% off at checkout on your first order. And as always, you got free shipping. First thing I'm doing after I get off this call, I got to see this new website. I didn't know about that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it just uh, it just dropped, and they worked out some of the some of the early kinks that you get with a new website. But uh, it's uh, it's just a little easier to navigate. The pictures are a little nicer. They really did an awesome job. So uh, Levi and Adam just continuing to step up their game and uh, and get a little bit more of a grab. And another thing, Nate, they've really updated their Innova their Innova discs there. I know that was something that was big. Um, so, you know, for our, our Innova throwers out there, and I know there's a lot of them, uh, Fisher Disc Golf's got you hooked up. So uh, hop over and check out some of these Innova discs that they have in stock there because uh, I know that some of the stuff came in. So, yeah, there's not much Innova. Well, they've changed that. There's a lot of Innova. So FisherDiscGolf.com, uh, check them out, and we thank them so much for their support on this show. Now, Nate, after you go to FisherDiscGolf.com and you pick up your favorite disc, uh, preferably from the Innova section there, and you're getting ready to go out and play your round, the other thing that's missing is that little bit of energy, that tasty snack that you need to carry in your bag. And uh, your buddy Garrett Gerthy has us covered with Double G Craft Jerky, uh, another awesome supporter of this show. Uh, guys, check out DoubleGCraftJerky.com. Uh, the jerky is amazing. We've already talked to you guys about all the awesome thing that Garrett's doing with the proceeds, uh, with the, the Children's Foundation. And, uh, and guys, everybody loves a tasty snack. So uh, hit up Double G Craft Jerky. Uh, you're getting an awesome snack for out being out on the course or having around the house. Uh, and of course you're supporting Garrett while he's out on tour and, uh, he's putting so much back into the disc golf community. And on top of it, it's damn good jerky. Uh, Nate, I know that you, uh, you're a fan of the double G craft jerky. Let me ask you a question. Did you, uh, did you make your trade? Did, did you get your jerky for your discs out in, uh, out in California? 
the jerky is in the mail and I'm checking the mail immediately every day after the mail carrier stops because I'm looking to get it. My only problem is I eat it too fast. I don't have any right now. The jerky's in the mail. I cannot wait. Sounds like he's jonesing a little bit. So a little bit. I'll admit, I'll admit to that. I'm ready to have that. Let's get good. that. Well, they, 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 dude, they make it with brisket. You're, you don't yeah. find that kind of quality anywhere. So, um, Double G Craft Jerky, we thank them so much. Make sure you're following them on social media because, as Nate has mentioned in the past, on top of having an amazing jerky, there's also some amazing videos on there of Double G just dropping bombs and that drone footage is just amazing uh how they're able to follow that disc so uh double g craft jerky and we thank them so much for their sponsorship and guys if you're enjoying what we're doing here and you want us to continue putting out new episodes nate talking uh to to legends and upcoming stars and, and guys that are out on tour now um, support our sponsors, man. It's the, it's the best way to keep us going. So, uh, we thank them for their support and, uh, and we thank you for supporting them and the show. You know, we did have to postpone the show a little bit, but we're certainly not going to disappoint our listeners. Now, there's been a lot of discussion throughout the episodes on running it with Nate Sexton, the, the goat discussion. And everybody has their own opinions and what everybody says, I tend to agree with a little bit of all of it. Uh, no matter who you pick, you can't be wrong. As long as today's guest is being mentioned in that. Nate, who are we running it with today? Yeah, we've definitely got somebody who's in that conversation. Let me, this, again, this is one of those intros that takes a while. So sit down. Um, I got to give her her due. Five time world champion, two time U.S. champion, three time Masters world champion, four time PDJ player of the year, disc golf hall of fame inductee. Winningest player in PDGA history with 299 career wins. And if that wasn't enough, also serves on the PDGA Board of Directors. We've got Elaine King. Hi, Nate. Glad to be with you. Sorry that it's, it's your own fault for winning so much that your intro takes so long, but we gotta, we can't leave any of that out. Well, it was a wonderful introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Well, how, how have you been? How are you doing? I'm in a slump right now. I got to say, um, I have just been struggling with my game lately. Could it be the 299? Could it be that? It's, it's, well, I blame Sarah Cunningham for um, stalling me out of my 300th. And then this last weekend, Andrea Eaton uh, did the same to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, I'm, I'm just uh, having one of those periods where even though I know how to play and I've done it many times, I'm just not, um, my form just isn't there. I'm not being consistent. Um, I'm, the swing doesn't feel quite right. The putt doesn't feel quite right. So I've been doing a little soul searching and I've just got to step right back, start working at the basics again. And, you know, Nate, it's really frustrating when you've been playing as long as I do and you have to relearn things again, but you know, that's the way it is with sport. If you're not going forward, you're going backwards. Yes. I think I can uh, empathize with how you feel. I've definitely gone through a couple of different times like that. And I think most, most serious players will say they have as well, where you just kind of lose connection with what you do and it doesn't feel easy for a little bit, but I'm sure that it will end for you and you'll be back uh, and hopefully getting that 300th very soon. But I want to take it way back before even the first win to kind of get started here. What we do on this show uh, often is just kind of go back and, and talk about the beginning for people. So 
our our research department tells us that you started disc golfing around July 1983. Do we have that right? Oh, that is very accurate. Yes. Okay, so, fantastic. Wow, that's actually a little unnerving. <laughs> that's when I was born, so it's a good year for the show this week. Good. So what, what was happening with me is that I had just married Eric Vandenberg, uh, to whom I'm still married. So there you go. Um, we were newlyweds. We were living in downtown Toronto in Canada. And Eric liked throwing a Frisbee around with his friends. And he knew that there was a competition every year, but never had attended. And we were walking around downtown Toronto and in the way that you found out about stuff in 1983, we saw a poster affixed to a light pole. And the poster uh, was advertising the Canadian Open, which was an event we found out later on that had a number of disc golf disciplines. And Eric was most interested in seeing freestyle, which was really all he knew about Frisbee. Uh, but when we went down to the Toronto Islands that weekend, and went to the designated place, um, there was not much happening there. So in talking to some people uh, who were in the area, they said, oh, everyone's golfing. And I just thought that was the most bizarre thing. Well, it's supposed to be a Frisbee competition. Why are people golfing? <laughs> so we, we walked over to the disc golf course, as it turned out, and just in time to see the final nine. And so we witnessed disc golf being played. And Eric was super excited about it. And the very next weekend, we were down with our backyard Frisbees playing disc golf. And so it began. You you had gone back to that same course, just to, that, that you had uh, spectated the tournament, and then you're back there giving it a try. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Do you... So... Yeah, I mean that's pretty amazing. You you have to take don't you have to take a boat to get there? It's not some insignificant insignificant thing to kind of like, you know, you you guys were pretty serious about getting to watch this. Yeah, well, we were living in downtown Toronto, so we just took the subway down. Oh, okay. And we got on the ferry, and you know, it's maybe a 10-minute ferry ride. Um, but you're right. It it takes a little bit of planning. It's a whole afternoon expedition. Cool. Well, l lucky thing that poster was where it was, I think. Indeed. I mean, what would my life be like if we hadn't gone to that event? I can't even imagine. <laughs> I got to imagine you would have found it six months later. I mean, with the with the the talent you clearly have for it and the passion that you and Eric both have. I mean, maybe if it wasn't that that July, it would have been the next July. So I, I think we still disc golf still would have hooked you at some point. But I'm glad it did when it did. Uh, as far as the PJ is concerned. Uh, we can only go back for you as far as 1985, but I'm curious, you know, already right there in 85, you're already playing the, the world championships. You're going to Tulsa, Oklahoma. You're, you know, going to the U.S., making a significant journey to go play there. I'm curious about, um, you know, how it got that serious that quickly. Well, it's sort of interesting. It was and it wasn't serious. I mean, you just have to remember that the whole vibe around disc golf was very different back in the 80s. Disc golf was an alternative sport. Nobody you talked to had ever heard of it. Um, yeah. People thought a Frisbee was something you threw around in the backyard or maybe you threw to your dog. And that's all anything new. anyone knew. There were maybe a couple of hundred courses 
in the world. Yeah. And, and so you found this community of people and it was just this community of sort of leftover hippies um, for lack of a better <laughs> term. I mean, it wasn't really the hippie era then, but it was just this group of people who were just playing this crazy sport. And um, it wasn't like going to a big athletic competition. It felt more like going to a Grateful Dead concert or doing some sort of culty thing. Yeah, go and see all these friends that you hadn't seen since last year kind of thing. And I mean, that's the way the world was for a few decades. It was just a big reunion of people. And you went really very much for the friendship and camaraderie as you did for the competition. Mm -hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. The competition was absolutely always there, but it was not the type of vibe we have today where it, it's recognized as a serious athletic sport with significant count amounts of money and sponsorships. You know, back in 83, I mean, nobody was sponsored. Sure. You know, you, you, and you didn't have very many discs either because there weren't that many molds. So it was, it was very different. Uh, rounds were over very quickly. I mean, it took you maybe two and a half hours to play a round. We played two rounds a day and then, you know, by 4.30, we were back at the hotel in the pool, zipping minis around. <laughs> well, that still goes on. So some things some things stay uh, stay uh, forever, I guess, because I think the minis at the pool still goes on today. But, uh, uh, yeah, how, how many – like, what were you throwing, yeah, I guess, as, if you can remember, in, in the early 80s? How many discs and, and what were the discs? Okay. Well, I had an arrow, which I used to putt with, and I think – by the time we went to Tulsa, I also had an XD. Okay. And I had a Phantom. And, that, and, and it was that, just three? We, I might have had a couple more. I mean, I guess there was a disc by Ben Wall I sometimes threw. You know, we there weren't many discs. Oh, yeah. I had an AVR. I had an AVR as well. So it was okay. an Arrow, an AVR, an XD, a Phantom. And I think that was pretty much it. Wow. Like, you didn't need a big bag. No, certainly not. Maybe uh, you, you hardly needed one at all if you if you really didn't want one. And I mean, I didn't have like a disc golf design bag for a long time. I just, you know, went to the sporting goods store and got some kind of backpacky thing. Was there a disc golf design bag or did anyone um, have one or just kind of homemade maybe? Well, Wall City had a bag. It was round, the the shape of a frisbee and it was big enough to fit, you know, six and, okay. and a towel. And it had a, a thing for a small water bottle and a little zipper pocket that you could put your keys in. And nice. like, what, else, what else did you need? Nothing, I suppose. That's, prob that's probably all you really do need. Uh, I, I'm curious to also just kind of about, you know, the scene in, uh, in Ontario in those early days. Like, like what was like a big field of women? Uh, how many people? It was like a lot of people. Or, or were you often playing with men at those t in those times? So it's interesting. In Toronto, um, there actually were a number of women who were playing. So you would often have four to eight women at a tournament, which I got to say, even nowadays, you often have four to eight women at a tournament. Um, of course, back then, there was a division called women. And anyone who was female played in that division. Yes. There was none of this am, pro, ages, whatever. You were either a woman or you won't. Yeah. And 
And I mean, back then too, almost everyone who played was in their 20s or maybe their early 30s. It was really rare to have anyone older who played. I suppose that kind of makes sense since the, you know, the sport was only invented in, in earnest, like, you know, maybe eight or nine years prior. So there's not a, not like somebody's like, I've been at this 30 years. I mean, that's not possible in those days. Yeah. And I mean, you will definitely hear about um, you know, people who played freestyle and some of the other disc disciplines and started much earlier and then shifted to disc golf. But by and large, it was a bunch of 20 year olds uh, playing the sport in the 80s. And, and, you know, a certain percentage of that group has just grown with the sport. And we're now in um, older age divisions. Sure, sure. All right. Well, uh, I know you, you kind of were competing in the worlds like almost every year, not a whole ton of tournaments, but probably for lack of the the option to play a whole ton of tournaments in those days. But then you, you got a couple of world second places, but I kind of want to fast forward because you have a long career and I don't want to keep you all night to 1991, that 1991 season. You played 12 tournaments. You won 12 tournaments <laughs> and you went to Dayton, Ohio, and you and you actually won the world championships by 10 shots. Uh, what can you remember about that trip, that win, and, and what that meant to you? It's interesting. At that point, I expected to win. I knew I had the skills. I had had a lot of success. I uh, felt strong compared to uh, the competition and I knew I could win. And so I did win. Um, I want to rewind just a teeny bit to oh, 19 please. 1987 because the most exciting win I've ever had in my life is uh, the uh, World Cup in Peru, Indiana in 1987. Okay. There was a, a huge field of women. I, I think it might have been 32 women, including world champion Vanessa Chambers and, you know, um, distance champion Tammy Pelicane. And it was just this huge field of women. And the prize money was $250, which was an insane amount of money, plus a pole hole. And let me tell you, in 1987, it was very, very hard to get your hands on a pole hole. Which our listeners aren't even going to know what that is, but but that's a basket. That is a basket. Um, and somehow I ended up winning the tournament. And I, it didn't even occur to me I was really in the running until a few holes before the end. And someone on my card said to me, she said, Elaine, you realize you're, you're ahead of Vanessa. And I just kind of thought, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. <laughs> I thought, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I know Vanessa's going to come back and win, but that's kind of cool that I'm ahead. And so we played another hole and, you know, the scores were the same and we played another hole and the scores were the same. And we came to the last hole, um, which the first throw you had to throw across a creek. And I wasn't sure that I could get quite across the creek. Um, but. I guess the adrenaline set in and probably possibly some poor judgment, but I decided I was just going to throw that disc as hard as I could and see what happened. And I just barely made it across the Creek. Nice. Uh, and unfortunately, Vanessa got into the Creek. And so my next shot, I had to throw over the Creek again, cause it wound around. And again, I just sort of wailed it as hard as I could and landed close to the basket. There was an enormous tree between me and the basket. And I remember doing a big straddle putt and getting it in. 
And then I, it just kind of occurred to me, I have won this tournament. And that was the most amazing feeling I've ever had with disc golf in my life. It was, it was a surprise. I didn't know I had the skills to win. Yeah. There's definitely something, uh, incredible about the, the phase of your career where you're kind of like on the climb and you're not, you're not sure yet where you're going to go, you know, and then to like, talk, tell me more about like, what was a world cup or is that what you said it was called? The world, a world cup event. It was a short lived series. And the idea is there would be, um, some events in the U S some events in Europe and there would be traveling and it didn't quite turn out to be what it set out to be, but the world cup events were events that had more sponsorship, you know, more prize money. And they were events that players would make more of an effort to get to. Uh, I guess they would be the equivalent of what you call a national tour or just golf pro tour event in today's parlance. Sure. But a tough ask come to Europe for a $250 first place prize. That's difficult. Even though that was like a mind, like you said, it was a mind blowing amount. Even, even then, you know, obviously inflation, it's worth a little bit more money back then, but still not as much as a flight to Europe would, would have been, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. So hard, hard to make that, that traveling thing come true. But I mean, obviously that we have, we've had visionaries trying to make that happen for a long time. And now I think finally starting to get there to have that traveling uh, dream be a, a real thing for some people. But back then tough, but yeah, thank you. And, and absolutely feel free to do that at any point during the show. We want to hear any stories you have that you feel like are worth telling, but you know, our, in the research we can do on the PDGA, I'm sure we're going to accidentally skip over some important stuff. So very happy to have you stop us and say, oh, but actually we need to talk about this any anytime you want. But back to the 1991, 12, 12 tournaments, 12 wins, Dayton, Ohio, world champion. You said you you kind of knew you were going to get it or, or you knew you could at least. I knew I um, had the skills to do it. So it was just a matter of executing the way I knew I was able to play when I was at my best. Yes. And then <clears throat> you kind of kept doing it, you know, because that, that was your your big run of world titles in the early 90s, the 1991, 92, 93, and 94 world champion. And the margins were, it wasn't close very often, 10 shots, 11 shots, 16 shots, and 15 shots for those four years. So, uh, you know, basically dominant uh, through those seasons. Yeah, it was, I was playing well. I was putting well. Um, it, it, everything was good. <laughs> yeah, I should say so. And then so, came 1995. Yeah, I need to. Add, I don't know the story here because all I know is you didn't play. Yeah, so I was just playing a casual round on my local course, and um, I was had a lie in a bush, and I made a throw out, and my hand hit just just a little tiny branch. But it was a hawthorn tree, and uh, the hawthorn thorn itself jabbed me in my middle knuckle of my throwing oh. hand. Oh, no. And I actually remember thinking at the time, oh, good, I didn't hurt myself because I, I was, you know, not wanting to hit the trunk of the tree. Um, and it, it was just a, a little dot of blood, you know, just nothing. But my hand started swelling up almost immediately. And so, you know, I got at home and started putting ice on it. And, you know, clearly something was very wrong. So I uh, got in to see a doctor and got some anti-inflammatories. And 
it just didn't really go away. So I ended up seeing a hand surgeon of all things. Um, and he basically said, well, what's happened is that poison from the hawthorn tree has gotten into uh, the joint. And so our joints have a, a protective membrane around them. And so that hawthorn poison has got into that protective membrane. And he said, well, basically it'll either clear up in six weeks or it'll be a year. <laughs> and it's like, wow. <laughs> so either, you know, it'll be able to, to drain out of that membrane or it'll be stuck there. And so for me, it, it took about a year. Like my hand was very swollen, limited mobility um, for quite a long time. And I tried to play left-handed during that time. And I have great admiration for anyone who can actually pull off the feat of playing with their opposite hand and having any ability whatsoever. Yeah, um, that's not me. I'm, I'm absolutely terrible. And uh, yeah, so 95 was an off year. And then I uh, started to come back in 96, but uh, uneven performance. Uh, and then 97, I kind of got back in my stride again. Yeah, and that, and you know, that was your your fifth uh, open, you know, world title in '97 in Charlotte, North Carolina. That was a 27 woman field, so a, a really nice field size for those days, I think. And you won that tournament by 25 throws. So, uh, you know, maybe you were maybe you were just itching to get back after all that frustration and all that time and uh, and putting in the training. But man, yeah, clearly by far your most uh, lopsided victory of all of them. Yeah, and the, um, one of the rounds was played on the Winthrop course, although in quite a different configuration than it is today. So, you know, when I play that course, I often think of the way the holes were back then. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we talked to Ken Climo about that a little bit and about how, you know, he he had been credited with kind of making a push for more par fours and fives in the game of disc golf because it had been a largely a par three affair. And question for you, I guess, is that how how rare was it or how often were you having women-specific tee pads in the early part of your career? Or did you kind of get caught with a bunch of par three and a halves? Because, you know, what was a appropriate distance for a long par three for the men ended up being like unreachable, but like such a simple upshot? Or, or were there, was that kind of forward thinking things happening where you did have... Uh, women's appropriate tees to make for like scoring separation? We generally played from the same tees as the men. I can remember a few times that there were some tees for the women. And in particular, um, at, um, in Texas at, um, oh gosh, Pleasure Island, Texas. And okay. I believe those were John Hout design courses. And for one hole, the women had a longer tee than the men and it was hysterical. The reaction at the time, like the men were just incensed that the women had a <laughs> longer tee. Um, but you know, John, I feel really pioneered a lot of the concepts of course design as we know them today. Um, as you mentioned back then, things were a par three. I mean, it was a pitch and putt many hole, many courses. I mean, you were expected to potentially birdie every hole. And if you look at some of the scores back then, you'll, you'll see that's the way it was. Um, but John started designing courses and making par fours and even making par fives. 
Um, but yeah, I think it was really quite recently that women's teas became uh, a factor to enable the men and the women to have a similar experience on the whole. Yeah, that's what you need is is to to find intrigue in the in the decision making and like the landing zones and the risk reward. And I think it's hard for anything but like a, a shorter par three to do that for both the men and the women at the same time, I think. And so I think, yeah, clearly Hauk and, and others like him able to kind of push the game forward that way. But yeah, I would, it just kind of occurred to me and I worried that like early women's disc golf might've ended up being a lot of like, throw it as hard as you can. And then you're 80 feet away and you put it under the basket and everyone gets their three. Well, um, there weren't as many courses where there were wide open vistas. I mean, the courses were in the woods. Certainly, Ed Hedrick, if he had his druthers, he put every single course in the woods. So the distance of the hole wasn't as important as accuracy. Great. Yeah, that's that's good, I think, for having a course that's fun across different power levels. Okay, well, great. Uh, I think, uh, I got to touch on the 299 again. We were, uh, we, I mean, I guess, I guess we, I should say, you know, after that 1997, you've, you've kept a really high level of play for a very long time. Into the 2000s, you're winning, uh, FPO US championships. Then later into the 2010s, you're winning masters, world championships, and you're still at it today in a, in a big way. But anyway, 299 wins to date out of 555 starts. Pretty, Incredible to think that you would have to win 10 tournaments a year for 30 full years just to reach that, that number. Uh, Brian Schwerberger, who I know you, you know well, uh, also there in the North Carolina area, which I guess maybe I did. I hear you moved. I'm not sure. I know you were in Durham for a while, but, uh, I'm back in Durham. Yeah. We're back there. Back. Okay. Okay. Uh, he's at 297 at last check. I'm curious on a scale of one to 10. How important is getting there first to you? Is that a, is that a big deal or not at all? Well, I'd love to get my three hundredth tournament. Yeah, um, and to be the first in history, right? Yeah. Oh, I guess that is true. I guess that yeah. is. But but you know, I'm the first in history to get to two ninety nine. So there. True. True. It doesn't have quite the same ring, but yeah, you, no, you no one can take that away. No, nope, take that away. Not Brian might be trying to push for that three hundred. He might try to beat you to it. Well, he might, because this weekend I'm doing a women's clinic, and the weekend after I'm uh, doing the live commentary for the Portland Open. Oh, nice. So Brian will have two weekends to get to 299 and just be with me, and um, he, he may try and scurry and find a couple of one days in there, <laughs> so he can surpass. Safe to say it is below a five on the one out of ten scale, whether Brian or you um, achieves that first. It doesn't sound a, a huge motivator for you obviously you will get the hundredth no question well brian is going to surpass me in tournament wins i thought it was going to be last year but then COVID hit yeah <laughs> so i mean it's going to be this year sometime i you know he he plays more events than i do um he's of course an extremely skilled player um he plays you know as many events as he possibly can close to home I play events close to home. I travel. You know, I, I'm going to be doing more commentary this year. Uh, I've got, you know, slightly different objectives. Um, sure. We've we've had a, a good uh, friendly rivalry over this. But, um, you know, the simple fact is Brian plays more tournaments and works hard at it. And uh, when he gets there, he'll get there. 
it's great. I think that you guys are only a couple hours apart from each other, so you can see each other at the at the tournaments and talk a little trash. <laughs> Absolutely. What is life without talking trash? <laughs> uh, circling back again to something that I heard from Ken Climo, I, I wanted to hear about your experience of being inducted into the Disc Golf Hall of Fame in 1997. I know for him, he was like really frustrated to be put in in what was clearly his prime. I wonder if that that mattered to you or did it ju- was just an honor and you were happy to happy to have that honor in your in your career. Oh, it's interesting. I remember just being surprised because uh, back then they didn't let no people know ahead of time. Yeah. Um, you know, anyone who was anyone came to the world championship. And unlike today, uh, like you attended all the events. So you went to the banquet, you went to the awards ceremony, you went to the PDGA meeting, uh, you know, you, you went to the fly mart, like everyone was at everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was kind of unheard of, you know, not to come to the players' meeting. Um, so there was none of this, oh, let's make sure they're there and have someone to introduce them, whatever. Um, they just assumed you'd be there. <laughs> so I was yeah. just sitting in the audience, and I remember I was barefoot, and I had <laughs> wet hair because I had just had a shower and just walked down from my hotel room. So I was just... Yeah, not looking like someone who was ready to win an award. <laughs> That's and, tough. Uh, they don't even let you think about your speech or anything. That's kind of a big moment to to have hit you by surprise. Well, fortunately, they did not record it. So uh, I'm not quite sure what I said, but I'm sure it was less than eloquent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But it wasn't. Uh, yeah, you didn't you didn't have that sort of. Uh, reaction. I, I know that Climo was honored. I don't mean to say he wasn't, but I, I've heard him speak to the effect of like, I can't believe they, you know, put me in now, you know, when I'm in the middle of like my, my dominant run of my career, uh, where, you know, traditionally you're like five years post retirement or whatever when they start considering you for something like a Hall of Fame. But a disc golf, obviously not the same as, as other more traditional sports. No, uh, the Disc Golf Hall of Fame was really set up to just make sure that we didn't forget um, many of the, the people who were movers and shakers, because um, even at the time when the Hall of Fame was established, there were people who had made a huge mark on the sport, but then had stepped back, and they were in danger of being forgotten. So that was, I think, the reason that LaVon Wolf felt a real sense of urgency to get the Disc Golf Hall of Fame going. And um, I think at the early times, it was just uh, the people who seemed important in the sport. So there were definitely players who were in their prime. And, you know, there are many, many examples of that. And, you know, even today, I think we are inducting players who are in their prime. So it's not the same criteria as other halls of fame. Sure. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I I think that through your entire career as a disc golfer, you've also been working in a more traditional career. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners a little bit more about what you do for your primary job. Yes. So I work in the pharmaceutical industry. So I got my PhD in analytical chemistry and I spent a year in Sweden, actually, where uh Eric and I both went and we, we disc golfed in Sweden. So that was a wonderful experience in, um, let's see, when was that? Um, 89 to 90. And then we lived in the U.S. 
per year. So that was through to 92. And so I was living in the U.S. in Detroit when I won my first world championship. Um, and the reason I was in those different countries is to get what's called a postdoctoral experience. So it's kind of like a training position for scientists um, after you receive your Ph.D., Sure. And so then in 92, I got my first job in the pharmaceutical industry in a small biotech company. And then in 96, I joined Glaxo Wellcome, which later became GlaxoSmithKline. It's one of the major pharmaceutical companies. And so I was with GSK until about four years ago. And now I'm a consultant for the pharmaceutical industry, um, which I'm really enjoying that because I can have a, a little bit more flexible time. Cool. Yeah. A lot of travel, I think, is, is from what I've heard from you is that you've, you, you, with your new role, are you, I mean, COVID I'm sure has changed that entirely, but before that. Yeah. Before that I was doing a fair bit of travel, which was a lot of fun because I had some great clients I would go to see every month or so. And then I was doing some audits of pharmaceutical companies as well. And uh, I'm sure I'll get back to this maybe later this year, or certainly next year. Uh, but the entire pharmaceutical industry for the last um, 12 to 14 months, I guess, um, doors have really been shut for travel. So everyone's doing everything remotely. Sure. And, and maybe that's a good segue into this next thing. Uh, something that you don't necessarily need to travel that far for is the Women's Global event. Despite the name, you don't really need to travel that far. I know it was just a week or two ago. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what it is, how it started, and how it went in 2021. Okay, the Women's Global event was conceptualized um, by Valerie Jenkins um, leading the PDJ Women's Committee, and the committee members uh, always supported this. So the idea was kind of revolutionary at the time. It was, can we get women all around the world playing on their local disc golf course, but somehow comparing their scores. And, you know, this was back when player ratings were becoming established and had uh, got to the point where they were uh, a little bit more reliable maybe than they were at the beginning. Um, so that gave us the tool to be able to compare how women played on the different courses by the round rating that they received. So the idea is you play two rounds, uh, you get your round ratings, add them up, that was your score, and you'd see how you did against women all around the world. And so it went from being, um, let's see, about less than 700 women, I think, in the first uh, offering, uh, and it got more and more popular with each succeeding year. And so just this past year, we had over 3,200 women competing. And it most definitely would have been more had COVID not, uh, unfortunately, canceled about 10% of our tournaments. And, and it's always in early May, right? And anybody can run a PDGA tournament that can participate in the, in the Women's Global. Yeah, so the tournaments do need to be registered with the PDGA. Um, the PDGA has supported this from the beginning by waiving the player fees and also waiving non-PDGA member 
fees, that, that $5 non-member. And that's a great thing because year on year, it, it's almost exactly one third of the women who uh, play in this event are not PDGA members. And we always see a burst of PDGA signups after these events. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, that's cool. I'm glad it's still growing. I, obviously, it would be. It's a great concept. And I hope uh, maybe some of our listeners will kind of take up the torch and, and have an event in their hometown if there isn't already one running because we got to get that 5,000 number. Maybe it's it, the way things are growing right now. I feel like that number isn't out of reach for next year with COVID kind of hopefully in the rear view and disc golf exploding. I feel like 5,000 women could be doable. Oh, I think it's extremely doable. Uh, you know, who knows how many women we might have gotten if tournament directors had felt like they could, you know, register tournaments and plan for it around the world. Um, you know, in so many countries, things were so locked down uh, that, that this year we, we never had a chance to really get full participation. But yeah, it's going to keep on growing. And I don't think it'll take too many years before we're in the tens of thousands. Yeah, yeah, I hope that's true. I think I, I tend to agree. I think we're on that path for sure. Speaking of the PDGA ratings, if they are to be believed, you have kept sort of an incredibly consistent level of play from the, the inception of the ratings in like 1998 all the way until 2021. You only have about 25 points maybe of variance. Uh, and you've had your peaks and your valleys and, and, uh, gone up and down, but. To what can you attribute the ability to play so well kind of into your 40s and 50s? Uh, an unnamed, anonymous 36-year-old professional really wants to know. <laughs> well, I think, you know, you got to keep yourself in shape. Uh, it's, you need to be healthy. And I'm sure your listeners understand the link between Physical health, of course, and performance, that's a, a pretty obvious link. But also, you know, mental health and performance is really important too. Uh, disc golf is very stressful. And so in order to have peak performance at disc golf, you've got to manage the stress in other areas of your life. And so, um, you know, I've got a, a very supportive husband. Uh, I've, you know, developed mechanisms to cope with my stress. I mean, sometimes more successful than others. Um, and as you mentioned before, having a full-time job, it gets to be a real grind when you've got a lot of work and, you know, work that you're taking home during the week, and then you're planning to go out for the weekend and you're in this different kind of stress all weekend. And then you have to immediately go back to work and catch up all on the stuff that you've missed. So, you know, I've certainly found that um, very challenging at times. I just get really tired of tournaments. It's like, I just want to stay home. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I take my fitness fairly seriously. Um, I try to keep in good cardiovascular health. Um, I do try and keep my, my muscle strength up. Flexibility, I think, is important and, you know, try to eat pretty decently. Uh, I'm not saying I am perfect in any of the above categories, but I think, you know, if, if you treat your body well, um, try and keep it in shape. Um, I think it's also important not to stress your body too much. And I think this is where some people err that, you know, they overplay too much. 
Yeah. And, you know, get these kind of chronic injuries that are hard to come back from. And I, I learned my lesson fairly early in my career that if you do way too much throwing in a several week period, you can actually kind of damage the muscles and it takes a while for that to heal again. Yeah. You could potentially lose a, a season to something like that if you, if you push it too far. Now I do have a kind of a chronic um, condition in my arm. Um, I get um, a little bit of tendonitis and I, there's a certain little tiny muscle in my arm that gets strained. And when that happens, I have a really hard time with short putts. Ah. And, you know, I was watching Jessica Weiss at the U.S. Women's Nationals and like I'm I'm we've talked before and I know the same thing's going on with her. I, there's just a muscle she's got strained in her arm and it's the same thing. Like the longer putts are actually fine. It's just these short putts that, that get really tough. So I I just have to have the right balance of training, you know, doing my practicing, doing my reps you know, throwing and resting. And the resting is really important to get that balance right. Well, I think you're definitely an authority on this because, yeah, like I said, it's it's pretty amazing to see, you know, the rating systems. On, you're, you're already five-time world champion before the ratings are even introduced. So clearly you've been playing at a super high level before that, over 30 years of like sustained elite performance uh, is not – not a common thing in any sport. So I think we can all learn something from what you say there and, uh, and try to follow that path to, if we want to play well for a long time, cause you've clearly shown your ability to do that. Although Nate, I'm kind of reflecting lately that I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it to the lead card of a national tour or disc golf pro tour again. Um, boy, the competition's getting thick. Yeah, tell me and, about it. I, I find myself worrying about the same thing, and I'm only 36. I'm, I'm, it's it's tough out there. Yeah, um, women are throwing farther. Like I was never the farthest throwing woman golfer, so I I don't think I my distance has really changed a whole lot over the years. I get about 300 feet, like maybe a tiny bit more in a great throw, but I just I top out at 300 feet and you know the way the courses are being designed now you know the women um who i'm competing against you know pretty consistently can throw 350 and that's just a huge difference you know when you're talking about a two or three shot hole sure sure or even the or even the possibility of birdie on many par threes that are going to be uh you know up in that 330 range yeah yeah so i mean it's a really positive development um and I'm just going to keep playing as long as I can because it's a lot of fun. Good. Uh, one uh, one or two more things and then we can get to some fan questions. One kind of little uh, thought exercise that we like to do with people, and I'm sure you've heard of this uh, idea, is just to talk about the Mount Rushmore of disc golf and more specifically of women's disc golf. So this can be four people that are either players or promoters or people that have been instrumental and deserve to be in that kind of conversation as like some of the most important people in women's disc golf history. And we will make it easy for you. You're on there. So there's only three. You only have to put three more. We're not going to force you to name yourself. We'll do it for you. And then, uh, so give us three more names of people that you think 
uh, are some of the most important figures in women's disc golf? Well, certainly on the player side, I've got to put Paige Pierce there. You know, yeah. she has really uh, been the role model for bringing women's disc golf to a, a much higher athletic level with her abilities. So she's definitely there. Um, and then I'd like to think of a promoter. And, you know, when I think of promoter, I the first name that comes to mind is Des Redding. Uh-huh. Because, you know, at a time when there wasn't much going on in terms of getting disc golf to the younger players, uh, Des and Jay took that as their passion and have made a difference. And, you know, you can see the number of junior players growing and growing. And, of course, Des has now got that role with the PDGA. So I would put Des there. I think she's a perfect choice because, you know, while her playing career might not be top four, it's it's certainly got to be top ten. So she's got – it's not like she isn't one of the greatest players ever, but also with all the work she's done growing the game, you know, for women and girls and for everyone, really. I think that's a, a really good uh, choice. And then it becomes tough to pick that fourth person because I, I have a number of different names in my mind who I would put there. You can have a few. You don't have, you can, you can just kind of, you don't have to go into detail. You can give us a couple names and we'll, we'll know where your head's at. Yeah. So I would like to put Sarah Nicholson up there. Uh, the work Sarah is doing with throw pink. Sure. Is, is really important. I mean, of course, Sarah has been uh, with the women's global as, you know, someone who's been, actively working to make that women's global happen every year since inception. Um, she's developed Throw Pink. It's uh, now just been established as a nonprofit. And there are an increasing number of Throw Pink events uh, around the country. And this year we're going to have this Throw Pink Women's Championship, which will be part of the U.S., which will be alongside the USDGC. Yeah. So that's a name there. Uh, kind of in terms of a player, you know, you, you've got Juliana Corver, you've got Katrina Allen, um, you've got Sarah Holcomb. Sure. Um, All good then, answers. Yeah. Then, you know, you've got women who've served on, you know, the PDGA board. Uh, it, it's, it, I think that fourth spot is, is got a lot of, um, a lot of women who are vying for that spot in my mind. And Anybody who can who comes to mind if I like kind of prompt you to say like someone almost before your time, like someone that was uh, older than you. Yeah, who was in the sport before me? Um, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't have to. I'm just 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 curious if there's anybody that pops into your head. Oh gosh, I mean there were a lot of um, women who who played and you know were really brave. I mean it was pioneering back then to be a, a, a woman in, in disc golf. But most of the players um, didn't have as long a career. Sure. So I'm you totally could only win a hundred dollars. Totally unprepared for this question, Nate. Totally. Unprepared. Uh, that's all right. That's, that, that, that's, you're doing a fantastic job answering it. I feel 
Um, I, I, and you don't have, I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I think that that makes perfect sense that there wasn't really career disc golfers back then because there's no money and the travel is extensive and it just, the, 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 the foundation wasn't built yet for that. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to talk to you about before we hopefully can take a little more of your time and get some fan questions in is, uh, you know, one of the more famous shots you probably ever threw that was caught on video somehow at the 2003 worlds, I believe. Uh, roughly 850 foot downhill throw where you actually hit the basket and nearly made what probably would be the longest ace ever in disc golf history. Uh, if, if you might, if you could kind of tell us what you remember about that throw. Yeah, I remember it well. Um, so it was in Flagstaff, Arizona at the world championships and, uh, Blair Paulson and, uh, his film crew alacrity disc golf. Uh, we're filming that hole because it was a spectacular hole. So we were playing, um, at the Snowbowl ski resort in the summer. So, uh, you played 16 holes uphill and then you played two holes downhill. <laughs> um, and the first downhill hole was relatively short. And then this, there was this 850 foot long, um, throw and we were throwing down a black diamond ski run. So I had been practicing that hole, um, with a number of other players and, you know, it was 850 feet. So, you know, I pulled out my driver and, you know, they were just all, you know, peeling off to the left. And, uh, I, Ken Klima was there and a few other guys and they were saying, no, 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 Elaine, they say, don't throw a driver. They say, you got to throw a mid range. And, you know, explained to me that, um, a driver, once it picked up speed, um, it would, you know, just hyzer out. But a mid-ranger, a mid-ranger that picked up speed would, you know, turn over a little bit more. So, you know, I tried it and it's like, oh yeah, that does go a lot straighter. Okay, great. Um, so, uh, we had played around the day before in Snowball and then we were playing around again and, uh, I stood there on hole 18. And so I rem very clearly remember thinking to myself, okay, you have to put it as low as you dare over the rise because, you know, there was this shallower slope and then you had a, a steeper slope. So you had to keep it low. Sure. And, and on a big downhill shot like that, height is not really your friend. It's going to get out of control quick if it gets way up. Yeah. The higher you go, the more it's going to hyzer off. So, um, I just executed that shot exactly the way I wanted to, just with a teeny bit of hyzer. Um, it just, um, skimmed over the rim, you know, just with a couple feet to spare. And then the disc, um, flipped up as it got more speed and just went straight. And it's like, oh, cool. I, I, you know, I got that line I wanted to. And then the disc just kept going and it kept going and it kept going. And, you know, it was a little bit misty and, you know, like I was almost losing sight of it. And then <laughs> I could just like barely see it. It seemed to change direction. And I thought, oh, okay, it looks like it hit the ground down there. And, you know, little did I know that it, I had actually hit the tray of the basket dead on. Um, so, you know, and then it took a long time to climb down. Sure. <laughs> was there, there some, was there some, 
Was there some yelling or anything that alerted you to the fact that you had hit the basket or, or did you only realize it much later? Oh, much later. I mean, like I, I could barely see the disc uh, when it, when it landed and you couldn't hear much. And as I was saying, it was a little bit misty and it took a while to get down the hill. Cause you know, it's not, it's not like there were paths for walking down the black sure. diamond ski hill and you know, all the other people had to find it. And yeah, it wasn't until I got right down there that they told me what had happened. And there was actually a fellow um, with hand cam down there that got the whole thing just beautifully in, in perfectly sharp focus. And, you know, he showed me what happened and he showed other people. And then unfortunately he taped over it later on. I was saying to him, you need to, to get that tape and get it to Blair Paulson. Of course, it was tapes back then. It wasn't electronics. Um, you need to get that tape to Blair so he can, you know, put it in the video. But uh, unfortunately, that poor fellow didn't do it. Huh. Well, it, 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 the video does exist. I mean, uh, it's kind of poorly titled, I would say. But I'm looking here at YouTube right now. And it, there's a video called Elaine King Almost Hits Juliana Corver at 2003 World Championships. I don't think that tells the story. Well, that might be Let true. Me clarify. More Can I clarify? I was not aiming for her. Of course. Well, maybe the basket is what you were aiming for. It turns out. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think the title ought to be Elaine King hits basket from 850 feet. Either way, that's how you're going to find this video. All I typed in to the YouTube search bar was Elaine King 850. So do that. Watch this incredible shot. Uh, one of you know, had it gone in, it would maybe be the most famous shot ever thrown. Uh, because I don't, I've never heard of anyone making a shot from farther than that in the in the history of the game. You know, quite honestly, Nate, if I had hit it, it would not have stuck. Well, you never know. Like, Maybe think, of, think of the speed. Yeah, think of you the might speed. be right. You might be right. It would have been. It would have been one of the sadder spitouts. But yeah, it, it would have been a tough catch. The basket. Well, I was saw the, the, doing all the video. Like I mean, that basket was like shaking. <laughs> Either way, incredible shot, incredible video, uh, and had to touch on it. Uh, do you have Do you have a, a little bit more time to answer a few fan questions? Sure, I, I'd just be sleeping, so why not answer some fan questions? <laughs> well, good, that's perfect because we got a ton of them. Um, they've been actually coming in since the inception of this show. Um, people always asking when we're going to have Elaine on. Now, I imagine the YouTube video that Nate just mentioned certainly doesn't help. Uh, this folklore, but one question that came in a million times was uh, the dynamic between yourself and another top female player throughout your time, Juliana Corver. It, it looks like you guys flip-flopped one and two quite a bit throughout your career. Um, what was the dynamic like having a, another player who was dominating at, at a level at the same time that you were dominating? Well, you're right. There was, there was quite... Um intense competition and you know juliana could definitely throw farther um but i uh you well i pride myself on accuracy and so you know it sort of depended on the course it sort of depended on the day and so you know we knew if we were both there we would both have our work cut out for ourselves to to try and win yeah absolutely you'd almost think where it's like uh well, I, I don't necessarily worry about this 
this tournament that's coming up, it's it's me versus Juliana here. So um, that's uh, that question came in a million times. What was? Did you guys have any kind of relationship off the disc golf course? Was it friendly at all, or was the competition just so stiff that you, you just you couldn't bring yourself to do it? Because I would understand either way. Oh well, I mean, you have to be friendly with with the people that you're spending all this time with. Um, I, I think it's super important that um, you know you get to know people that you're playing with. You know, you're spending what about eight hours a day with them if if you're on the same card with them for two rounds so so it's yeah really important for people to get along and, and you know um we always well i think the women's cards in general certainly you know back in the 90s and 2000s you know it, it was it was fun um you know there was it was competition but we had fun we had, we laughed um you know, we were serious about the competition, but, um, you know, we, we knew that, you know, this was how we were spending our time and wanted to enjoy it. So, so definitely, um, you know, we weren't in any way, um, antagonistic or anything like that. We, uh, definitely, definitely, um, were playing the game, loving the sport and just enjoying the, the pure competition. It falls right in line with the uh, <clears throat> the stress reduction being key to peak performance idea as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's I can't even imagine the stress there must be if you don't get along with your card mates, as well as trying to compete with them. Yeah, I can't imagine that. That's fun. In fact, the group of guys that I play with, I don't like most of them, so it does make the rounds <laughs> a lot, a lot less exciting. Um, Elaine, we had Nate Doss on the show early into running it, and one of the things that he had spoke about that led to him walking away at a at an early age, I guess, was that the pressure and not just the victories that he had but all the second place finishes and all the third place finishes and they really kind of ate at him. Those second place. I mean, I, I think you took second place at the world's three years in a row. If I have that right. Um, you know, so on top of the five that you have, you've got at least three second place finishes. Do, are those, obviously they're an amazing accomplishment, but are, are those things that, that kind of uh, uh, ate at you or, or picked away at you? Oh, well, to come in second is incredibly annoying. Just incredibly annoying. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you should, you should interview Josh Anton because I, you know, there's another player who had a ton of second places and never, never quite got the, the win. But, um, I had had wins. So, you know, of course I want to keep winning. Like I'm, I'm really driven, but, um, you know, Coming in second place, you know, if that's the best I could do, that's the best I could do. Uh, I think that's a, a place where having another career actually is helpful. So I can be extremely disappointed about, you know, not playing the best, you know, those, those errant shots, those missed putts, you know, the missed lines, you know, that just seems so important on Sunday. But you know, on Monday you walk into work and you got a whole bunch of people waiting for you to do stuff. You've you've got things you need to accomplish and you have accomplishments at work. And and for me, 
working full-time actually helped put the disc golf in perspective? That's a great answer. That, that, that's a great answer. I hit a, I, I chained out from 120 yesterday and I spent my entire day thinking about it at work today. I didn't do anything else. <laughs> so um, that, uh, that brings us to a, an awesome question that we got here talking about those second place finishes. And while I, we've got two uh, amazing pros here, uh, this question came to us in the email from Charlie. And Charlie says his PDGA rating is a 751 and he is 11 years old. I'm having trouble controlling my anger, especially when things don't go my way. Could you guys maybe help me figure out a way to help with that? So it sounds like Charlie's having a lot of fun playing, but when things don't go his way, he starts to, the wheels come off the bus a little bit. Is there a special tactic that either of you guys have used to, uh, to help bring yourself back down to, to level? So, uh, yeah, I would say to Charlie, when you make a shot, that doesn't go in the way you intend, the first thing you should be thinking about is where did I go wrong? You know, are my feet in the right position? You know, did I, did I pull back and swing? Did I snap my wrist? You know, if it was an Anheuser, did I arch my back? Like you should be immediately analyzing what went wrong. Because if you can analyze with your shot what you did wrong, then that helps you to be able to execute it better the next time. There's no, you know, being upset with a result is not going to help you. But if you analyze it, that will help you. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. And I, I would also say that, uh, yeah, you know, recognizing that anger at that level is not a positive thing for your game. Uh, is important. And I always think about it as when you're having that tough day and, and you can't figure out what's going right or uh, what's going wrong, or, or it just feels like every shot is bad. I like to think about, and it's a hard thing to do, but I like to think about even in a bad shot, trying to, trying my best to say, well, I threw it hard enough or whatever it is, stealing this tiny little bit of confidence, even from a poor result and saying, yeah, well, I hit my line, even if my power was bad or, you know, I, I committed to that. I went too far. I went OB, but at least I committed and that's what I wanted to do. And then I feel like you take that teeny little bit of, of confidence and also kind of frustration. And I like to think about like that frustration is like, something that, that I imagine like putting into like a trash compactor and what you can get from that is like one little drop of determination that you take to the next tee pad, you know, and, and then it's like making your goal on that next hole, like simple and achievable for me is the, is important. Like you your goal can't be like, I want to, I got to park this. And that's the tempting thing to do when you're having a bad day. You're like, well, I'll turn it around when I park this hole, but that's so much pressure because then you throw it 30 feet away and now you're mad about that when that's, in by all accounts, a pretty nice shot. So I think you have to, you know, confidence is something you have to build for yourself and, and you can do that slowly and, and just kind of keep trying to find the good in, in your shots and make your goal on it, on the subsequent shot, something like throw it to the right of the tree, you know, and if it's way right and it hits another tree, you have to be like, well, that was bad. But at the same time, I did the one thing that was most important for me to do in that moment. And, and I think that's, that's a, a different outlook that can kind of keep you maybe a little more even keeled and help you build uh, some positive momentum going forward into your, into your rounds. 
Well, there you go, Charlie. Um, some uh, some great advice from from two folks that have have done it and gone through it a lot. Um, Elaine, a lot of big wins in your career, two hundred ninety nine of them to be exact. Um, going through your PDGA, um, I see that back in. 1997, you had a huge win at the Joseph Davis Open in Lewiston, New York, one of my hometown courses. You took down first place with a $40 prize. Uh, any memories of playing out at Joseph Davis here? I have to throw a little love for my Western New York disc golf fans. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, the best thing about Joe Davis Park was when the pool was open. <laughs> <laughs> then you could zip the minis. That's, you, the, that's you, what it's all about. Probably, get, well, let me tell you, it, was, it wasn't just a pool. It was an Olympic-sized pool, and they had um, a very deep second pool with a, you know, a regular and a high diving board. It, it was spectacular at lunch. You could go and swim and dive and, you know, risk, you know, injuring yourself quite severely, really. <laughs> um, but that was, was absolutely the best. And it was so sad when the pool closed down. Um, so that, that's one great memory. Um, you, you know, the Lewiston guys, the New York guys were absolutely wonderful, completely and utterly supportive. Um, just loved the sport. Uh, man, gotta mention Doug Opiella, Mary Opiella. The Reed brothers, um, you know, a lot of a lot of wonderful people there. Um, good memories. Are you a Toronto Maple Leafs fan? Of course. All right, we'll edit that out. Um, okay, next part. <laughs> I, I'm just, I, I'm a I'm a diehard Sabres fan here, Elaine. So you know, we're not that not that far away. Um, you know, you're just you were just down the QEW as you were coming up in Toronto. So um, that's okay though. We won't we won't hold that against you. Another question that came in through our email, which is uh, an interesting question, and one that I've actually asked uh, a few of our guests in the past, and if you're not comfortable talking about it, that's fine. We can skip right over it. But one of the more shocking things that happened in, in disc golf was you leaving Discraft and switching over. How difficult was it switching to a new bag after all of those years? And how much time did it take for you to get used to your new sponsor and your new plastic? So, yeah, that's a great question. Because, you know, you see some sponsored players changing their sponsor every year or two. Um, I don't want to ever change my sponsor again. It was the most painful thing ever to change every disc in my bag. Oh my gosh. Um, so like, uh, so I'll, I'll start off. So, um, the putter was what I expected to have the most trouble with. And it's what I had the least trouble with. I'm throwing an electron atom. You put it straight, it flies straight. Just like end of story. Nothing to learn there. Just throw it straight. Um, drivers were not so bad, um, but the mid ranges, oh my gosh, it took, I'm still not sure I'm, I'm, I've got the mid ranges in my bag that I want. I've concluded there's an electron matrix that I just need to beat up a lot more and then I'll fill a gap in my bag. Yeah. For me, the mid ranges, that was the toughest disc um, this category to switch over with. 
And I remember, I don't know, maybe a six months to a year after I had made the switch and, you know, I'm back into tournament mode. And sometimes I'd, I'd be standing there on the course going, I have no idea what to disc to throw or how to throw it. I have not felt this way since 1984. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, uh, that, that's gotta be difficult. Um, I feel your pain because I throw my go-to disc in the drink probably once a month. So um, I'm, I'm constantly changing my bag as well. Uh, you, you know, that, that, that period that you talked about that you're kind of in right now, uh, that's the period that I've been in since I started playing the game. So uh, I, I feel, I feel for you on that uh, for sure. Yeah. But I've got to say after, after about a year, um, I really did dial in most of the discs and, um, you know, put in some pretty decent performances. So uh, it is something that can be overcome with time and practice. And I can't let an opportunity for my, my one Jarrett burn of the show slip by by saying, if you were never good, it really doesn't hurt that bad to be bad. Uh, we'll edit that out as well. Um, <laughs> so- <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was just funny as I was going through and I, 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 you know, you being from the Toronto area, I figured you probably made it into Western New York and, and Buffalo for a few rounds. And I saw the, the Joseph Davis open and it's a, it's a course that I get out and play every once in a while and, uh, and have a good time. So, uh, we have a, a big, a big Western New York following here. Um, so it's, uh, it's really cool to be able to see that you've played some courses out this way. And Jarrett, I think there was one year where I actually cashed an MPO at the Joseph Davis. Nice. That's awesome. That is I awesome. Very, I was very proud of myself. Did you play a lot of MPO events? Uh, I played some. If there were no women, no FPOs, I would play MPO. Sometimes I, feel- I would play MA1, but um, uh, just depending on you know, the MA1 players there were. Sometimes um, I just felt it would, was more appropriate for me to play MPO. Was it a pretty decent battle ever between you and your husband, Eric? Eric almost always um, scores better than I do. Every now and then I'll come out um, ahead of him at a tournament. Um, but that will be when I've played really well and he's had a problem. Again, some good trash talk material, I think. <laughs> Yeah, that's like, you know, we're, we're going to go play nine and, you know, losers cutting the grass. <laughs> right. I, I could, I could see how that could work. Sure. Um, uh, Elaine, uh, another question that came in several times, obviously, uh, a bunch of questions regarding the 300, uh, wins. When did that ever, I know Nate asked how important it was to you, but did it ever kind of become like a goal, a little checklist, uh, a bucket list type thing, like where you were like, wow, I'm at 240 and I'm feeling good. I'm, I'm going to make it to 300 here. When did that kind of sink in and, and was it something that you, you started eyeing down? Okay. I got to tell you. I had absolutely no idea that I had more wins than any other player until Matt Peckham pointed that out to me a couple of years ago. Um, I just, I, I never looked at the statistic. I had never thought about it and um, I was completely unaware. So to answer your question until a few years ago, I had no idea. So yeah, I have not ever had a goal of most, tournament wins okay fair enough uh 
This one came in from the email from Matthew. Uh, obviously, women's disc golf picking up a ton of steam. Uh, you see these prizes are just out of this world. Uh, what is one thing that has really excited you about the progression of women's disc golf in today's game? That's got to be men watching the women playing because they feel that watching the women's game is more instructive to helping their game. I think that statement right there that I've heard from many, many men playing the sport is fantastic. Um, cause let, let's, let's be honest. Most men who are casual watchers of disc golf, uh, videos are not throwing, you know, 500 feet and cannot execute the shots that the top men can execute. But when they watch the women play, that's more the type of shot that they can execute. So I, I think where we're starting to see the viewership really grow, I mean, it's not just the women watching other women play, it's also the men watching and, and learning and taking pointers. So I think that's super exciting from my point of view. And I also take pointers because there's shots, you know, there's certainly shots that today's women players throw better than I do. Certain, certain situations and certain players have skills that I would in a heartbeat trade, uh, straight across for what I currently have. So I think there's, there's, uh, things to be learned no matter what level you play at. Oh, for sure. The women's game today is, uh, it's as much fun and at times, you know, sometimes more fun than, than watching the men. And obviously, you know, the, the long ball is always fun. It's, it's really cool to watch these far, but the, the, some of the, the technical throws that you see on the FPO side, uh, and the strategy, it's, it's just amazing. And, um, hey, quick shout out to one of my card mates, Andy, um, who for the last year has asserted that he could beat Paige Pierce. Uh, Paige with a huge win yesterday, minus eight, minus 22 for the tournament to take it down. Uh, Andy shot a plus. Plus 12 and came in last place in his intermediate division at Como Park. So um, just a reminder of how amazing these women actually are. <laughs> there, he's got no shot. Sorry. Absolutely no shot. It's funny because uh, I told him that Paige would beat him by 20 if they played. I said she would beat you by 20. And, uh, and yesterday she played at one of the more difficult courses in the country and shot minus eight. And he played at a little rec park and shot plus 12. So she did beat him by 20. And, uh, yeah, so <laughs> I just think it's, uh, I just think it's amazing that, that, um, you know, for all of the attention and well-deserved that the women get, that there's still people out there that, that don't, don't give it the attention and, and respect that they deserve. It's always puzzling to me why some men think just because they're a man, they should be able to beat any woman. Now, if you're a man who put the work and effort into the game that the top women do, then I would say, yeah, you you could have a point there, but if you're um, just a casual player who's not putting any particular dedication into it, um, that's a, a fairly unreasonable expectation, and those people are bound to be severely disappointed at some point. In their life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, if he was playing in the women's division in his tournament yesterday, he would have came in fourth out of eight. So, um, Elaine, another question that uh, that has come in uh, quite a bit was. Obviously, as Nate had mentioned, you're still playing at a at a ridiculously high level. You're still winning. You're still cashing. 
Uh, have you thought about how long this, this run's going to last for? I mean, I, I, listen, we don't want to cut it short. Uh, we'll enjoy uh, Elaine King for as long as we can. But have you thought about a, a time when you're going to hang your bag up? No, I'm playing forever. Nice. Forever. Yes, that is the answer. All the way on to 400. I can't wait. Well, the, the only thing that I can ask from you, uh, Elaine, is that as you're approaching that 400th victory, uh, you, you come back and chat with us. <laughs> it would be my pleasure if I can get 400. That That's a bit of a tall order, but um, I'll do my best. You know, Just Elaine, so I can what, have the pleasure of talking to you again. Yeah, All whether right. you think you can or you can't, you're right either way. So... Uh, <laughs> It's uh, it's been an absolute honor to to have you on. W- one of the things that I enjoy so much uh, about doing this show with Nate is having the opportunity to uh, to talk to some of the absolute legends and and greats in this sport. And uh, you are certainly both of those. And the fact that you're still continuing to go is just uh, it's absolutely phenomenal. And uh, I I can't thank you enough for for giving us this. And you really have helped me out more than you could ever understand because now I don't have to respond to the 20 messages a week of people that are like, hey, have you ever thought of having Elaine King on the show? And I'm like, hey, that's that's not a bad idea. Uh, so uh, so thank you. Thank you so much for, for doing this and, and giving us this opportunity. It's been my pleasure to be on Running It with you. Awesome. It was great talking to you, Lane. And yeah, Jarrett said it best. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time and for sharing some of your stories. And yeah, definitely would love to have you on again sometime. Anytime. Well, Nate, uh, I don't even know what to say. Every single time you line up one of these interviews with one of these legends, I'm blown away. And I'm like, that's, that's my new goat right there on my list and uh and she's always been in my argument but elaine king moved up a lot in my argument after doing research for this show you talk about just an impressive career that is still going yeah she it's incredible the the skill and the 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 power like she said she's not even really feeling like her power is reduced she's in probably her early 50s it's pretty amazing uh and it speaks to how seriously she's taken it and especially you know well having a pretty high powered career this whole time uh, aside from disc golf just makes it even that much more impressive all that she's achieved as basically a weekend warrior. Yeah. She's definitely one of the greats, super humble. Uh, so I, I know she has a hard time uh, admitting to herself that she's that important to the sport, but uh, I think she is. And yeah, obviously we had to talk to her. I really was looking forward to getting the chance and it was fun to hear the stories. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? It kind of just continues to add to the, uh, to the high end kind of guests that we have here. Uh, you know, Lane talked about, you know, she's a big shot in the pharmaceutical business. Uh, we had Dr. Bree Sexton on the podcast at one point. <laughs> we had, we had the doctor of smooth, Kale LaVisca on, on the podcast. So, you know, we're, we're, we're making moves here in the, in, in the medical world as well on running with Nate Sexton. It's pretty exciting for me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the show slowly transitioning perhaps away from disc golf, get more into just kind of immunology stuff, you know, the, the stuff the fans really want to hear. You know what? I'm going to have to hop on Hulu and see if they got ER, um, <laughs> brush up, brush up on my stuff. So Nate, I know you'd mentioned that you're going to be traveling. Uh, what's up on the schedule for you, man? I got the Masters Cup, the Portland Open, and the Resistance Discs Open. I think I got three in a row coming up, which I haven't done that in a long time. So looking forward to this swing. It's going to be super tough uh, childcare-wise, but 
going to try to make it all work and, and do the balancing act and see if I can be at, at all the places I'm supposed to be. And then it's the world championship. So this is kind of my, my final tune up here. I got to get, get uh, everything clicking and play these tournaments well and uh, get ready to compete down there in Utah at the world championships uh, in less than a month, which is nuts. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's it's go time for you, and I think we saw you starting to hit your hit your stride at some times in the in the last tournament. Man, it was uh, it was great to see Nate Sexton back out there and and reminding everybody that uh, that you're still here. You, you haven't gone away, man. You're you're here to fight, and you're still one of the top players in the world. And uh, it's just uh, it's exciting to to see you back at it and and doing it. So we're we're certainly looking forward to that. Um, yeah, we're going to keep an eye on this and, and hopefully you can, uh, you can find a new wild animal to pee on a disc because it kind of gave you, kind of gave you a little bit of luck. And then you oh, aced, yeah. Yeah. you aced with the fox pee disc. Yeah. Yeah. There's got to be another animal that's willing to help me out. Santa Cruz is a wild course up there in the hills. There's, there's all kinds of wildlife. We'll be good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, guys, we thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us on all forms of social media at Running It With Nate Sexton uh, on Instagram. He is at Frisbee Nate. I am at Orjarrett222. And uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank our sponsors again, FisherDiscGolf.com and, of course, Double G Craft Jerky uh, and our friends over at Wonderkind. Nate, we had Elaine King on the show today. That isn't even close to a layup. Nah, if you're not running it, you're never going to make it. So, you know, we got to do what we got to do. We got to run it. (laughs) Nothing else to do. Guys, we'll see you next time. Thank you.